So if you want to grab your Bible, we are going to continue um, in the book of Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. And we're actually going to start doing this new thing. We have this up here. It's also in your bulletin. I think we printed this out for you guys. Um, do you, does everybody use this app? All right, most people use this app. All right, so if you, if you use this app, you can point your phone there at the screen or with your camera, and it'll open in the app. It's also in the um, bulletin there. There's the little QR code. Um, every week now for the sermons, we're going to be putting all the scriptures and slides and all that sort of stuff in there so that you can follow along if you want on your phones. I was actually just... Who are we talking to? Oh, I was talking to a, a buddy of mine, yeah, from Oregon, and she was saying that um, at her church, when they get up, they all tell them to put your phones away, and they kind of lecture everybody about you're not allowed to use your phones during church, and they have, like, signs and stuff. And so what I said was, oh, that's cool. We're going to try to do the opposite of that. So everybody get your phones out, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's not the 1800s. We're allowed to use our phones in church. So... Um, if you want to follow along, like quotes and pictures and all that sort of stuff. So I'll talk about this probably every week for the next few weeks um, as we start. Um, okay, so we're back in the book of Revelation. Um, and we are going to uh, continue in talking about these seven letters that Jesus wrote to these churches in what's now um, uh, Turkey. Uh, we, it used to be called uh, Asia Minor. And I think I have here a... A map. Uh, these are the seven churches there. Um, and so last week we, we did the, the letter to the church in Ephesus. And if you remember, what I said was there's a lot of people who have written all kinds of um, uh, scholarly papers and stuff about why these churches are in the order that they're in. But the actual answer is really simple. It's just that's the order they were in if you were going to drop the letters off one by one. And so we're just going to keep moving our way around. So today we're going to... Um, we're going to go over the uh, letter to the church in Smyrna. It's called Smyrna. There you go. That's fun to say, right? Okay, so before we get into it, I want to show you this just one more time. We're probably not going to talk about this every week. But just to get the, the general outline of every one of these letters that Jesus is writing to these churches covers these areas. So first, Jesus starts with some sort of a lofty description of himself. He starts by saying, this is who I am to sort of ground everything about this letter in the person and the work of Christ. Then after he gets into the commendation, he says, look, here's the good. Here's what you guys that are doing that's uh, awesome. And I'm really proud of you for this. Uh, but then he moves into, here's what you're doing that's not so awesome. Um, and that's different for each church. And then here's what you should do about it. Here's the solution. So here's where you're not living up to the mark. Here's what you need to do to kind of get to that. Um, and then there's a consequence if you disobey the word, and then there's a promise if you obey. And so that's how each of these letters start. So um, let's begin. I'm just going to read um, the whole letter uh, to the church in Smyrna. And uh, it's verses, this is a shorter one. This is verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slanders of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Oops, there's a tambourine down there. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested. For, uh, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So just to start out, let's open up. Um, this church is in a city called Smyrna. Now remember, like I said, the order is just the order a mail carrier would carry these. So uh, Ephesus was first. Ephesus was about 60 miles off the coast of the little island of Patmos where John was writing the book of Revelation from. Then up the road, just about 35 miles, was this smaller town of Smyrna. Um, it was this city. Uh, was one of the centers of emperor worship. And we're going to talk a lot about emperor worship uh, in these seven letters because it comes up over and over again. But basically, they treated the emperor like he was divine, like he was a god, and they worshipped him. And the problem for Christians, and we talked about this last time, was uh, they had this problem in the empire. Uh, Once a year, everyone in the empire was uh, required to show up to an official station or whatever and throw a pinch of incense on some altar and say Caesar is Lord, worshiping Caesar, and then they give you basically what we would consider like a driver's license, like your ID to walk around and not get arrested. Uh, And so Christians, a lot of them uh, wouldn't do it. And so you could see how this became a problem. And so in many places, this led to all kinds of persecution. And you can imagine here in this city especially, this was one of the couple of places that actually had a temple to the emperor. So this was a place, and... um, Let's see. This, these, these right here are just kind of the ruins of the city of Smyrna now in modern-day Turkey. The temple was kind of off to the side from where we see these pictures. Uh, but it was the center of this cult of the emperor. And so right in the heart of the beast of this, little, of this city um, is this little church, this little group of people who are trying to follow Jesus. And so John, uh, or Jesus, I guess, through John, writes to them this letter. But remembering the pattern, right? Jesus always starts with a description of himself. So he starts like this in 2.8. He says, And to the angel in the church of Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. So this is Jesus' description of himself. First he says, I'm the first and the last. Now a lot of these descriptions, we didn't read chapter 1 together. And it's a really kind of a bummer, because like I said last week, uh, Revelation is my favorite book in the Bible. Uh, it's the happy ending at the end of a long and terrible story. And uh, someday I hope to teach with us all the whole book of Revelation, and it's going to be a lot of fun. But we, we're not doing that now. We're just doing these two chapters. And so we skipped chapter 1. And in chapter 1, there's this lofty description of Jesus. And a lot of these descriptions of Jesus in um, these seven letters are just pulled literally from the first chapter. And this is one of them. It's almost word for word from 117. And what it means here, the first and the last, is that Jesus is outside of creation. Um, he is the creator. Right? He is the first. So he's not the first one to be created. He's the first one behind creation. And this is actually really important in philosophy. If you ever study philosophy, we call them um, the primary cause, right? the, uh, the first cause, the, the primary mover. Um, and the way this works is just philosophically, everything that had a beginning uh, had to have a cause. So if there's something with a beginning, something caused it. Right? And so if I roll a ball down the hill, the cause of that was me rolling the ball down, you know, you can see. And so, and then what was the cause of me? And you can go back in time. There's a chain. Everything has to have a cause. And so uh, going back, either uh, creation or uh, the universe has to go back into eternity, which now we know because of the Big Bang Theory and Albert Einstein, uh, we know is not true. Everything in the universe had a beginning. Right? And actually, Albert Einstein said, I don't really like where this is leading. I think I might have accidentally just proved that God exists when he came up with the idea, of the, or he didn't come up with it, but the guys who came up with it, and he helped prove the Big Bang Theory. Because what they say is that behind 
uh, every cause goes back to a chain where something needs to be eternal. And something needs to be the first cause, the first mover, the primary mover. And all over scripture, what we see is the Bible describes Jesus as the primary mover. He is the one who started the whole universe. He's the one who was eternal from eternity past, right? God existed. And then they created, you know, God, the the Trinity, they created the world uh, or the universe. And then everything started. So we owe everything to this, this Lord, everything to this creator. And that's the description here. He says, I'm the first and the last. Another place he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, which is like a way to say I'm the A to the Z. I'm everything. Uh, next, he says, though, here's, which makes this next section a little weird, right? He's the primary mover. He's the creator who died and came back to life. You see, God, the creator, the first cause, the source of everything, he entered into his creation. Why? And that's the storyline, the gospel storyline, is that God created the world perfect, and then we broke it. And so to put things right, to put things back the way that they're supposed to be, the creator entered his creation, became a real flesh and blood human being, and lived a perfect life. And although he was the only person in history who didn't deserve death, he faced death in a brutal way. But because he's not a part of his creation, because he's the sinless one, Death couldn't hold him. And so on Sunday morning, as we celebrate on Easter every year, right, he busted out of the grave and came back to life. He was resurrected. He's the firstborn of the resurrection. And so this is who Jesus describes himself as. And we're going to come back to this in a minute because this description of Jesus as the one who has defeated death is really uh, important, really important kind of for what he says next. Because look at uh, the good. Now, he moves into the commendation. Here's the good things I want to say about this church. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say uh, they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. All right, so um, uh, there's three real downers here, right? There's tribulation, poverty, and slander. And what Jesus says is you guys have been faithful through all of it. But let's talk about these. So first, tribulation. So records... Uh, are really shaky in the first century about persecution of Christians. Like, how bad was persecution? And the truth is, there wasn't really a ton of empire-wide persecution uh, until pretty late in the first century, beginning of the second century. There wasn't really any emperors who said, we're going to kill all the Christians everywhere across the whole empire. But regionally, uh, and you got to remember, too, the empire of Rome was... Uh, There was an emperor in Rome, but if he wanted to get a message, let's say, to Israel, that took three months, three, four months to get a message across. So it wasn't like he could just, you know, text his ambassador in Israel, hey, here's how we're going to treat Christians. So there wasn't a lot of communication across the empire. And so this persecution was happening kind of regionally. So in different areas, depending on who was the leader, they would pop up and they would really, really rip into these Christians. And they would really, they would torture Christians, do all sorts of stuff. And so, um, like I said, most people believe, most scholars believe that most of the time when there was persecution, it was because of this idea that Christians would not worship the emperor. They would not enter into the uh, emperor cult, we call it. And in uh, some instances, this persecution was physical, so they would throw them in jail, they would whip them. A lot of Christians were brutally executed. We're actually going to read one of those stories in a minute. Um, But in other instances, the persecution was something else, and that's the second thing Jesus says. You know, you're also, you're poor, you're, you're in poverty. And so you can see how being a a follower of Jesus in this area would have been hard to make a living. Because somebody would come up and say, oh, cool, you're a metal worker? Great, I have a job for you. We just need to see your certificate that says you worship the emperor real fast. 
You know, I just need to see that you're a good citizen, you're whatever, you're following the rules. You say, well, I don't have one of those. Oh, then I'm going to go hire the metal worker who does. Or they would come to you and they would say, oh, great, you work with wood, you're a, a, you know, you're a carpenter or whatever, great. I need you to come over to my house, I have a job for you. Great, what's the job? Well, I need you to build a whole frame thing so I can have somewhere to put all my idols. And you would say, well, I, I, you know, my conscience, I can't really do that. And so everything in this culture was tied up with this cult of religions, these different religious sects, uh, especially the emperor worship. And it made, uh, it made it so that believers had a lot of trouble making a living. And so uh, some, for some reason specifically, this church was in dire poverty. But what Jesus says to them is, look, I know you're, you're, you're in poverty, in parentheses there, but you're actually rich. Because looking at it from an earthly perspective, yeah, they're all dirt poor. But Jesus says, because you're followers of me, right, you have everything that you need. Right? You, you have what really matters. And that really influences a lot of the stuff that they're going through. And then the third thing he says is that you're, you're facing slander. So let me read that whole sentence again. It says, in the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. So slander from who? Uh, people who say they are Jews and are not. Now, this isn't denying the ethnic identity of Jewish folks. He's not saying they're not actually Jewish uh, you know, in their ethnic makeup. But the imagery of Jew and Gentile is picked up from the Old Testament by the New Testament writers to kind of talk about those who are in the covenant of God and those who are not. And so a lot of times the New Testament writers will call people Gentiles, even if they're Jewish, because he means you're not really following the Lord. You're not part of the covenant. And so let me tell you what was really going on here then. In the early days of the church, everybody thought of Christianity as just a subsect of uh, Judaism. And uh, originally Christianity was called the way. Uh, we weren't called Christians until uh, in the church of Antioch they started making fun of us. And that's where the name Christian comes from. It means like little Christ. And like, oh, look at these little Jesuses. They all think they're little Jesus. And they started making fun of them. And the Christians in Antioch were like, yeah, that's what we are. Uh, we'll pick up that name. So originally, though, it was called the way. And because um, <clears throat> what happened was everybody in the empire needed to do that whole emperor worship thing. Um, early on, though, what happened was the Jews kept revolting and refusing to worship the emperor. So the Jewish folks had a special dispensation from the Roman government that said, you guys don't have to worship the emperor. Everybody else has to worship the emperor, but you guys don't. And so as long as Christianity was thought of like a subsect of Judaism, they were under that protection. But as time went on, that, those protections disappeared. And in certain areas, um, Jewish folks would go to the Romans and say, hey, these guys are not with us. They do not get this protection. And then that would lead to all sorts of persecution and poverty and some of that other stuff. And so uh, the more that that happened, the more the persecution rose up. And so I want to read to you, um, and what happened too in a lot of places was since Jewish folks didn't have the authority to punish people uh, with execution in their own, uh, in the Roman Empire, what they would do is they would try to trick the Romans into doing it for them. And that's what happened with Jesus. It's what happens a few times with Paul and some other people. So watch, I want to read to you um, the founding of the church uh, in Corinth. So if you have your Bible, flip over to Acts 18. It says this, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently uh, come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because uh, Claudius had commanded that all the Jews, all the Jews to leave Rome. Uh, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he was a tent worker, uh, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Oh, there it is. Uh, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath 
uh, and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And they opposed and reviled him. And he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own hands. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles, which would infuriate them. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titus Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. All right, so I love this story so much. So Paul goes into the city of Corinth, and as was his custom, he starts in the synagogues with Jewish folks. And he walks in, and he's a traveling rabbi. He's a famous rabbi with tons of training, and of course they invite him to speak. And he gets up and he starts talking about Jesus. And after time goes by, they get furious with him and they kick him out. And so Paul, I take my ball and I'm going home like a five-year-old kind of thing. And he throws this big huff and it makes this big scene about how I'm leaving. And then he goes and he plants a church next door to the synagogue. Right? I love that. But look what happens. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. So the pastor of the Jewish church next door becomes a believer, believes in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So Paul's core team to plant this church was most of the people that were going to the Jewish synagogue. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul in Achaia... The Jews made a united attack on Paul. So this is what we're kind of reading. It's a similar kind of thing, what we're reading about here in Revelation 2. Um, they made uh, a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God in contrary, uh, contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, so then Paul, they bring him before the Roman authorities. He's, okay, here's my chance. I'm going to give this big old speech. This is going to be awesome. When Paul opened his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were only a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. Uh, but since it's a matter of questions, uh, since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them out from the tribunal. So the, the proconsul in the area in this instance doesn't go along with the slander of the Jews. When the Jewish folks from the synagogue bring Paul before, he's like, I don't care about any of this. This has nothing to do with the Roman law. And he says, you guys just deal with this on your own. And then verse 17, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So they take the new pastor who replaced the old pastor of the Jewish synagogue and they flog him in front of everybody. Um, there's actually a happy ending to that story because then if you read the book of First Corinthians, does anybody know this? You've read the book of Corinthians? At the beginning of it, Paul says, I, Paul, am writing this book. Oh, and my buddy, Sosthenes. So that guy who took him in front of the, the, the tribunal actually later on uh, becomes a believer. So anyway, but that's the same. I just wanted to read to you that story because that's really what's going on here in Revelation 2, except with much worse um, outcomes. Because in, in Acts 18, Paul gets away with it because the Roman guy says, look, I don't care about this at all. I have better things to do with my time than worry about bickering among your religious, who's your Christ, and all this stuff. Uh, but later on, as the Christians become more and more separated from Jewish folks, these sort of things start to happen, and it starts to go really bad. So you can see, when it says the slander of the Jewish folks who are of the synagogue of Satan, 
that's not just, oh, they're talking trash, right? When he says that, this is real, actual, harsh persecution. They're being brought in front of the authorities. And so this church in Smyrna is in a tough spot. Now, remember the pattern, though. First, there's the description of Jesus. Then there's the commendation. Uh, then there's the rebuke. So what's the rebuke for this church? Well, if you read through the letter, this is one of the ones that breaks the pattern. There is no rebuke for this church. Right? This one and the church in Philadelphia both do not receive a rebuke. Jesus uh, jumps straight from, I know you're suffering, to here's what you should do. Here's what I need you to do. I want to exhort you in these things. So was this church perfect? No, of course not. Right? But there were no, their persecution was so hard and there were no big giant problems like in some of these other churches. That Jesus jumps right into the encouragement. So this is what he says. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. For ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful uh, unto death. So now the devil is going to throw some of you in prison. Now whenever we talk about uh, in San Francisco, right? When we say we get up and we talk about the devil. It's kind of a weird thing. People, oh man, you guys actually believe in the devil? Uh, you know, horns and all that sort of stuff. And I was actually just reading, I saw a, a Twitter feed kind of thing, like uh, where uh, somebody from the Church of Satan, which was founded here in San Francisco, they don't actually believe in Satan. They just believe in a bunch of atheists, uh, was making a bunch of jokes about how we're the Church of Satan, but those Christians are the ones who actually believe in Satan. And then everybody was piling on and making jokes and all that sort of stuff. And uh, how nuts we are for believing that the devil is real. And I was reading it, and I was like, yeah, he is. We do. We believe there's an actual enemy. That Maybe not the horns and the... That's all medieval kind of stuff. Maybe not the horns and all that. Uh, but we believe that he is the enemy of God. And because we're God's adopted children, that makes him our enemy as well. He hates us. And there's this whole other supernatural world happening around us. And the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time describing it. But what we do as we read through scriptures, we get all these small, quick glimpses of this supernatural world that's happening around our physical world. And so this is one of those instances. It doesn't just say, look, you're going to go to prison. He says, look, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is going to throw some of you in prison. Or we see the part with Judas where it says the devil entered him and then you know, he betrayed Christ. The, like, the devil has power in this world. He moves things. Uh, things happen because of him. And so this is one of those instances. The devil is out to get this church specifically. And it says that you're going to be thrown into prison. Now, when we think of prison, right, we think of somewhere like San Quentin where you go, you spend some time in the yard and, uh, you know, you get three squares a day and you get to work out and there's cable TV. And, like, you just, as long as you can be nice to people and not get shanked, you'll be all right. You know, that's what we think of prison. Uh, but prison back then was very different, right? Jail back then was very different. There was only three reasons to put somebody in jail. They didn't put you in jail for like 20 years. Oh, you committed a crime, here's your, here's your punishment for 20 years or whatever. The reasons they would put somebody in jail is, A, to compel somebody to do something, right? So we're going to put you in jail until you tell us who robbed the 7-Eleven. And jail, by the way, you don't get any meals. Nobody brings you – unless your family members bring you food, you just starve to death in jail. And most of the jails were not heated. There was nowhere to sleep. They were pretty disgusting. Nowhere to go to the bathroom. Right? And so usually it just take a few days before somebody's like, I'll tell you who robbed the 7-Eleven. So that's the first reason. The second reason they would put somebody in jail is just to keep them until their trial. So this is why Paul was in jail for long periods of time because his trials kept getting delayed. I appeal to the emperor. Great, now we've got to wait two years before the emperor can see you, kind of a thing. 
Um, and so Paul was in jail a lot for this reason. And then the third reason is just to keep somebody locked up for a day or two until you killed them before the execution. So really, when you read about, hey, we're going to throw you in jail, you can kind of see how most likely it's not going to be that first option where we need you to tell us who robbed the 7-Eleven. It's probably going to be either until your trial or until your execution. And that's what that probably that third idea is what they have in mind here. Uh, but look at the reason. Wait a sec. Look at the reason here for this persecution. He says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. Okay, so here's where things get complicated. Because what, what Jesus says here is that above Satan's evil purpose for this persecution, God has a godly purpose for this persecution. And he's going to use this persecution to test, um, or another way we could say this is almost to refine, to strengthen the faith of this church in the city of Smyrna. Let me read this to you from 1 Peter. It says, um, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the, uh, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, that's what Peter says, is that this persecution is going to refine your faith. It's going to strengthen the faith of the people uh, going through this testing. Uh, oh, wait, sorry. No, we're not there yet. Um, and now, that, when you read that, that seems rough, right? God is going to allow this persecution to happen so that their faith can be tested. But here's the thing. Do you remember what we just said a second ago about who Jesus is? Right? Who do, how does Jesus describe himself in this section? in the beginning. He says, look, I'm the creator. I'm the, I'm the primary mover. Everything exists because of me. Now, if that's true, then he has the absolute right to do whatever he wants. And us, the creation, can't say to him, wow, that's not really fair that you're using this persecution of Satan to test these people's faith. Paul's answer to that kind of question is, who are you to talk back to God? Right? He says that in Romans 9, right? when we ask these kind of questions. That's the answer. But here's the other thing is, the truth is, Persecution stinks. Nobody wants to be thrown into the lions and all that sort of stuff. But our faith, when you look at it from a heavenly perspective, our faith is more important than our comfort and security. And so if God wants to take our comfort and our security to give us faith, that's actually a really sweet trade. Right? That's actually a great deal. Uh, but that in the moment, right, that's kind of lofty talk that doesn't make suffering any easier. And so Jesus tells them, uh, in that verse that, look, the suffering is only going to last for 10 days. Now, remember, again, uh, Revelation is apocalyptic literature, which means we don't take the numbers literally. He doesn't mean it'll be literally, uh, you know, a week and three days from now. So a week from Wednesday or whatever. You're not going to have persecution anymore. 10 days uh, is a figurative number. In Daniel 1, uh, there's a story where Daniel and his buds go to Babylon and they refuse to eat. Uh, all the food that the uh, king gives them. And he says, look, let us go on a diet for 10 days. And when the 10 days is over, uh, we'll see which one of these two groups of people is healthier, the vegetarians or the meat eaters. And so this just picks up that language to mean it's a short period of time. It's a limited amount of time. It's not gonna, this persecution is not gonna last forever. And so what Jesus tells them then is two things. Do not fear and be faithful unto death. Now in Greek, uh, I try not to talk about the Greek grammar as much as I can. There's a lot of Greek grammar stuff that I think is neat but really doesn't matter that much. But here's one that actually does matter. In Greek where it says do not fear, what it actually says is it doesn't mean when this happens to you in the future, don't be afraid. 
It means stop being afraid right now because this persecution is already happening and the church in Smyrna is already afraid. And so this has already begun. And so Jesus tells them, don't be afraid. Um, It's like this uh, from Luke. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after have nothing more that they can do. This is what Jesus is saying. Look, don't be afraid because all they can do to you is kill your body. They cannot touch your eternity. They can't rock your faith. But here's the thing. For some of you, they are going to kill your body. And so what he says is you need to be faithful unto death. And this is why we think when he talks about jailing, it means until execution. You really have to believe something to be willing to be tortured and die uh, for it. Right? Pain really does something to people. Um, when I crashed my motorcycle a little while ago, you know, uh, what was that? September. And what happened was the bike landed on my leg like this and my shoe came off and then I scraped the whole inside of my foot off. It was pretty nasty. Anyway, and so they wrapped up my foot wrong. And so that night I had to go home. I had to go home and uh, it took like over an hour and I almost passed out like twice. I was dripping water on the wound and slowly peeling the gauze off piece by piece off the raw wound. And the entire time, you know what I was thinking? Man, oops, there's that... Uh, that tambourine again. Um, I was thinking, man, if I was in the first century and they were torturing me, I was going to tell them whatever they wanted to know, right? This stinks. And this is only like a little bit of pain compared to what some of these people went through, right? Think of Stephen. How much did he believe in Christ to be stoned to death and to forgive the people who were stoning him? Or Peter, who was crucified. Or Paul beheaded. James was beheaded. The other James, they clubbed him to death. That is no way to go out. Right, So many of these Christians were tortured because they really had the faith to believe that Jesus is who he says he was. And Jesus says, I need you to be faithful unto death. That's his challenge to this church in Smyrna. And then to wrap up, he says there's a promise in it um, if you do. If you are faithful to death, he says, I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So he says, I'm going to give you the crown of life. Now, this is not, this is the exact same language we see in the book of James, in James 1.12. And what this means is, there's not a special reward in heaven just for those who are martyred for the faith. The crown of life is what every believer gets when they reach the end. And so what Jesus is telling these believers is, getting to the end is going to be harder for you guys than it is for a lot of other people. But when you do get there, you've got the crown of life. So you may be... Uh, And it's a way to say eternal life. You have eternal life waiting for you. And so you may be facing poverty uh, because of your faith. You may face persecution because of your faith, hardship, pain, maybe even death. But do you know what's on the other side? Perfect eternal life. It's going to all be worth it. You're going to have... Uh, you're going to live in perfect peace. You're going to live forever. You're going to live in perfect harmony with other people, in harmony with the world around you, in harmony with the God that you were created to be in relationship with. There'll be no sickness. There'll be no aging, no death, no motorcycle accidents, right? No knee surgery, no all this stuff that makes this world stink is going to be gone. And if you're faithful to Christ and you conquer through this evil system in the world around us, that's what we all have waiting for us at the end. And so uh, that's what he's encouraging with them. He says, look, to the one who conquers, you're not going to be hurt by the second death. Because some people are going to die once and some people are going to die twice. And we really want to try through our faith in Christ to be in that group that's only going to die once. And that's what it means to conquer, right? That's what it means. When When he says conquer, he's not talking about strength and power. That's what the whole book of Revelation is about. 
The book of Revelation is about how the people of Jesus, this, this community that he has created, conquers through this evil system that they call the system of Babylon. And it, the system of Babylon surrounds us and is constantly trying to crush us. And through humility and love, we stay faithful to Jesus through it all because at the end of it, we have this crown of life. We win. We conquer. And so that's what's going on. Now, notice how uh, in this section, Jesus doesn't just tell these guys, look, I need you to suck it up. This persecution is really going to stink, uh, but I need you to just white knuckle it and get through this. What he does is he gives them hope. He grounds them and he grounds their faith in something even greater than the persecution. Um, there's this author, his name's J. Scott Duvall. He said the... Uh, that said J. Scott Duvall? Yeah, there we go. He says this, um, The great Christian hope is not the removal from trouble, but resurrection from the dead. This text stresses that Jesus has conquered death and will one day raise his people from the dead. All too often, our hope is tied in the immediate removal uh, from tribulation or persecution when the Lord does not always promise such. Our hope rests firmly on his ability to give us life if our faithfulness leads us to untimely death. Knowing that biblical hope extends beyond the grave can encourage greater faithfulness and bring deeper comfort. Right. So do you see how the description again of Jesus at the beginning lays the groundwork for everything that he encourages these people? Because what he says to them is, I'm the first mover. He says two things about who he is. He says, I'm the primary mover. I'm the creator of the world. and I have the right to do whatever I want. And I'm the one who has defeated death. And because I have been resurrected now, you have the promise of resurrection coming after this life. So no matter what the, the Roman authorities in the city of Smyrna do to you, you have a resurrection coming. And that resurrection is a game changer. Paul says this, but if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as man, as by man came death, by a man uh, has also come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each to his own order. Christ the firstfruits and then all of those who belong to Christ. So Jesus' resurrection was just the down payment on our resurrection. right? Because he was resurrected, we can have hope that the same thing is going to happen to us one day. That's the crown of life that's just around the corner. And because of that, it completely changes the way that we live in the here and now. It completely changes the way that we live while this whole evil world system of injustice and oppression and evil that the Bible calls Babylon is surrounding us. God's people are faithful through it no matter what happens to us because we know, because we're grounded in that resurrection at the end of the story. Which is why the book of Revelation is my favorite book in the Bible. Because it's the book that gives us that sort of hope and it tells us all about it. So my question to you, I want to ask you two questions real fast, and then I want to read to you a story about somebody who really took this seriously, and then we'll end. Two questions I want you to think about is, what has your faith cost you? You see, a lot of us try to work out our entire lives so that nothing bad will ever happen to us, and we do so at the cost of the gospel. Jesus said, look, guys, they persecuted me. Of course they're going to persecute you. It's going to happen. Now, what does that look like is different in every world. But if your faith has never cost you anything, my question to you is, why is that? Now, it could just be lucky circumstances, or it could be, I don't know. But for the most part, a lot of times, it's because you're backing off your faith to avoid something uncomfortable or to avoid something bad. And what the Bible says is you need to press into that faith no matter what happens to you. 
And so the second question then is, uh, where is your hope? Right? As you think about this system and this world and everything that's bad that's happening and when bad things do happen to you because of your faith, what is it that keeps you going? Because what uh, Jesus tells this church, he doesn't just say suck it up and do it. He says ground yourself in the hope of resurrection and then that will pull you through. Faith in him and faith in what's coming eventually will pull you through uh, into the next life. There was a guy named Polycarp. And he was a bishop in this city of Smyrna. And at the time that this letter was written, Polycarp was probably in his early, maybe late 20s. Okay? So he was one of the original people, the original audience of this letter. He sat in church one day when somebody showed up. Actually, at one point, too, by the way, he was an apostle, uh, a disciple of the apostle John who wrote this letter. And so when he was younger, he studied under John. And so... Uh, Odds are, as a young man, he was sitting in church, and somebody came into church and said, hey, we have a letter from our old pastor who's been exiled, John. And they sat and they read this letter, the whole book of Revelation about hope. And they get to the one part where they said, and we specifically have a letter for the church in Smyrna. What they said was, you're about to face death and even more persecution. Be faithful because of the hope of the resurrection. And Polycarp probably sat there and he listened to that. Because Jesus has a crown of life secured for you at the end of the road. Well, 60 years later, okay, jump forward down the story, 60 years. As a man in his late 80s, Polycarp, uh, was arrested. And I want to read to you the whole story. Um, if you grabbed that Bible app, I don't have slides for this, but if you grabbed that Bible app, uh, I actually wrote this whole thing in there. Now, I thought about just kind of paraphrasing this, but instead of paraphrasing it, I'm just going to read it from uh, the Enduring the Word commentary by David Guzik, because I think he does a good job of just writing out what happened in this story. Um, now, it says this. <clears throat> the year after Polycarp returned from Rome, a great persecution came upon the Christians of Smyrna. His congregation urged him to leave the city until the threat blew over. So believing that God wanted him to be around for a few more years, Polycarp left the city, and he hid out in a farm belonging to some Christian friends. One day on the farm, he prayed, as he prayed in his room, Polycarp had a vision of his pillow engulfed in flames. And he knew what God was saying to him and calmly told his companions, uh, I see that I must be burned at the stake. Meanwhile, the chief of police issued a warrant for his arrest. They seized one of Polycarp's servants and they tortured him until, they told, uh, until he told them where his master was. Towards the evening, the police chief and the band of soldiers came to the old farmhouse. When the soldiers found him, they were embarrassed to see uh, that they had come to arrest such a, an old, frail man. They reluctantly put him on a donkey and walked him back to the city of Smyrna. On the way to the city, the police chief and the other government officials tried to persuade Polycarp to offer a pinch of incense before a statue of Caesar and simply say Caesar is Lord. That's all he had to do. He would have been off the hook. They pleaded with him to do it and escape the dreadful penalties. At first, Polycarp was silent, but then he calmly gave his firm answer, no. The police, chief was, the police chief was now angry. Annoyed with the old man, he pushed him off his carriage and onto the, the hard ground. Polycarp, bruised but resolute, got up and walked the rest of the way <clears throat> into the arena. The horrid games in the arena had already begun in earnest, and a large, bloodthirsty mob gathered to see Christians tortured and killed. One... Uh, one Christian named uh, Quintus boldly proclaimed himself a follower of Jesus <clears throat> and said he was willing to be martyred. But when he saw the vicious animals in the arena, he lost courage and agreed 
to burn a pinch of incense uh, to Caesar as Lord. Another young man named Germanicus didn't back down. He marched out and faced the lions and died an agonizing death for the Lord Jesus. Ten other Christians gave their lives that day, but the mob was unsatisfied. Uh, they cried out, away with the atheists who do not worship our gods. To them, Christians were atheists because they didn't recognize the traditional Roman, uh, gods of Rome and Greece. Uh, finally, the crowd started chanting, bring out Polycarp. When Polycarp uh, brought his tired body into the arena, he and the other Christians heard a voice from heaven. It said, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. And he stood before the proconsul. They tried one more time to get him to renounce Jesus. The proconsul told Polycarp uh, to agree with the crowd and shout, away with the atheists. Polycarp looked sternly at the bloodthirsty mob, waved his hand toward them, and said, away with those atheists. The proconsul persisted, take the oath and revile Christ, and I'm going to set you free. Polycarp answered, for 86 years I've served Jesus. How dare I now revile my king? The proconsul finally gave up and announced to the crowd uh, the crime of the accused. Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. The crowd shouted, let the lions loose, but the animals had already been put away. The crowd then demanded that Polycarp be burned. The old man remembered the dream about the pillow burning and took courage in God. He said to his executioners, It is well. I fear not the flame that burns for a season and after a while is quenched. By the way, another version of this story has him also saying, uh, I fear, like it says, uh, I don't fear the flame that burns for a season, but after a while is flenched. But you should be afraid of the flames that last forever. He said that to the guys who were persecuting him. And then he says, why do you delay? Come on, do your will. So they arranged a great pile of wood and set up a pole in the middle. They tied Polycarp to the pole. And he prayed, I thank you that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and this hour, that I may receive a portion with the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ. After he prayed, he gave thanks to God and they set the wood ablaze. A great wall of flames shot up around him to the sky, but it, wouldn't, it never touched Polycarp. God set a hedge of protection between him and the fire. Seeing that he would not burn, the executioner, in a furious rage, stabbed the old man through with a long spear. Immediately, streams of blood gushed from his body and extinguished the fire. When this happened, witnesses say they saw a dove fly up from the smoke into heaven. At the very same moment, uh, miles and miles away, a church leader in Rome named Irenaeus, who was a famous church father and writer, said that he heard a voice tell him Polycarp is dead, God has called his servant home. Okay, so we read about this in the book of Revelation, right? Persecution's coming. This persecution, and it's not going to last forever, but what we read is it did last for a while, because this is like, what was it, 60-something years later. And so it's, it's an encouraging story, I think, for us to read, um, but here's the thing. Here's where we'll end. Um, nobody, odds are, we're not going to face this kind of persecution here in San Francisco. Nobody's going to feed you to the lions. Nobody's going to set you on fire. Nobody's going to spear you. This kind of stuff is not... It does happen in other parts of the world, but it's not happening here. Uh, but we still uh, live in a world that is run by this evil system of Babylon. And odds are that if you hold Christian values and you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to run into these kind of problems. And so my encouragement to you is you, you're not going to have to be faithful like Polycarp was, but you are going to have to be faithful to what God has called you to be faithful to. And the answer is not, guys, just suck it up and get through it. The answer is ground yourself in the resurrection that's coming because you know Jesus has been resurrected. You know your resurrection is around the corner. And no matter what they do to you in this life, it's, it's going to pale in comparison to the glory that you're going to receive 
in your new resurrection body as we spend eternity with our Lord. Amen? All right, let's pray.